0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. On today's show, we're talking to Patricia McKeown from Unison. So ever since I started the show, I've been wanting to get someone on to try and explain the privatization of the NHS. It's something that I don't think a lot of people even realize is happening, or maybe don't realize the extent to which it's happening. And since it's such a complicated issue I wanted to get someone who really understands the situation and what's been going on over the past couple of decades to really get a grasp on exactly how the NHS is being privatized and essentially the ultimate goal of people who are attempting to privatize it. If you enjoy the show you can share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Carrier Pigeon, Telegram, Today's episode is sponsored by Beer 52. They're the UK's largest craft beer club. They deliver a monthly selection of craft beers along with a copy of their magazine for men. It's expertly selected, small batch beers delivered right to your door. And if you want £10 off your first order, you can follow the description in the link below. That's £10 off your first order from Beer 52 by following the link in the description. I'll not go on anymore. I'll let Patricia McKeown do the talking.
1: Well, one of the problems we have these days is that um, we now have four NHSs. When I first started in the job, it was one giant NHS, um, excellent institution. Uh, obviously, has to evolve over time. All, all those service delivery mechanisms have to change and develop. Um, I don't think it was really foreseen that with the emergence of political devolution we would end up with effectively four health services. So when you hear things about the health service in the media these days, it tends to be the health service in England they're talking about. And when you hear the UK government making commitments, it's usually commitments to the English health service. So while there may have been an injection of... Um, you know more resources say during the Blair period, that didn't necessarily transfer across to Northern Ireland, because what we get is a finite sum of money, uh, and with that money, our government has to make decisions uh, on resource allocation, where they will spend it, and um, whether or not that will be about properly supporting the health service.
0: Well, if we're if we're going to talk about sort of our own funding of the, the, the Department of Health, do you want to talk a little bit about the cuts that you're currently fighting? Hmm.
1: Well, smoke and mirrors going on for a very long time. Um, if you listen to the media, uh, if you listen to the TV, the radio, or you read the press, you would think that since devolution, um, we have been making health a special case and injecting more money into it that has never been true Um, first of all we've got a combined health and social services system here in Northern Ireland that was unique Um, some parts of the health service in England Scotland and Wales are moving that direction but our part of the health service that is resource intensive well it all is but resource intensive is the part in the community And that's been the grossly underfunded part of it for many decades. Uh, But when they did comparisons between the average health spend per person in Northern Ireland and the same health spend per person in England, Scotland or Wales, they never disaggregated. They counted the social services end in. And we looked as though we were spending more money than anybody else. Only in recent years did they finally separate the cost of the two parts of the system? And guess what? We turned out to be spending less money in Northern Ireland on both parts of it than they were in the rest of the UK. Um, In addition to that, we have gone through nearly a decade of year-on-year cuts in the health budget, which were outrageously presented to the general public as ring-fencing and protection. But actually, they were cuts that had amounted to about 6% per annum. And that builds up. That builds up and it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Um, most particularly, it manifests itself in increased queues, increased waiting times, and a whole section of the population who are not actually getting what they're entitled to. Mental health services... underfunded compared with their comparators in Britain.
0: Britain's not exactly well-funded. And they're not well-funded.
1: Exactly, they're not well-funded. UK as a whole, it's spend on health and social care combined, much less than, it's below the European average. So a lot of pretense, a lot of spin to convince people that this is... um, uh, uh, real effort being made by whoever's in government to protect the health and well-being of people because that's a politically contentious issue. Mm. It still is very, very important to people. I'm glad that it is because the fact that people feel passionate about the health service is one of the factors in keeping it alive as a national health service. But the attempt to claw back health care into the private sector in many different forms has been going on for decades. I think it became most obvious during the Thatcher period. Uh, The first big attack was on what she dismissed as the hotel services. Uh, That means the, the men and women who were cooking and cleaning, providing the hygiene, providing the nutrition to get people well, uh, and who were doing other services that were all connected to being a part of the healthcare care team. But she dismissed those and said, we can do those cheaper in the private sector. And that was uh, an ensuing, uh, for us, 15 years of massive fights to stop it. Um, we ended up becoming the only part of the health service across the UK, which succeeded in returning all those privatised services back in-house when I am talking about mighty struggles of the lowest paid health care workers, people in their communities supporting them, industrial action, legal action, um, political action, in order for that to happen. That, you could say, was 15 years of struggle that resulted in a victory, but no sooner had we secured those services back in-house, than along comes a different UK government... Uh, this time the Labour government, and they started to perfect some of the attempts at privatisation that Maggie Thatcher didn't quite get right. And the biggest one of those was the Private Finance Initiative, whereby you uh, get the private sector to build your hospital or your school, you pay them an exorbitant amount of money, Much, much greater sum of money over an extended period of years uh, than it would have cost you to build it yourself in the first place. And at the end of a period of 25 years or 30 years, you're handed back a building that's probably not fit for purpose. Um, An extraordinary um, exploitation of the infrastructure of the health service. Again, that was... uh, Big issue right across the health service in England, Scotland and Wales. Uh, And many, many hospitals were built this way. Uh, We went on a very extended campaign for five years here. Um, We uh, challenged the original supposition that maybe 16 parts of the health service would be built that way. And many, many schools. We stopped schools. We stopped virtually all of the health service being built that way Um, we didn't succeed with the new hospital in the southwest because by the time we finally got devolved government the contract for that had already been signed and it would have costed more money to end the contract than it would have to build the hospital but look at the consequences these years later the existence of all these hospitals in england in particular built by the private finance initiative bankrupt bankrupted at least a dozen health trusts because you got to pay the mortgage first. Um, here, uh, we may only have um, the one major hospital built in that way, but all of the trusts are surcharged every year, million pounds a year, cut off the budget for direct health care delivery in order to service the mortgage that must be paid on that hospital. The hospital could have been built for let's say, around the £300 million mark, by the time we have all finished paying for it, because at the end of the day, it's the people's money, it will be nearly a billion will have been spent. And that's what making money out of one element of healthcare looks like. There are then the other elements that have moved mostly by stealth. Um, We've been challenging for at least a decade... Um, on the fact that medicine is being privatised by stealth. Originally, it was, look, we've got an enormous problem here with waiting lists in some specialties and some areas, so what we want to do is bring in some private sector help to get those waiting lists down. But in fact, when we started digging deeper, we realised that many of the people who were delivering these services were actually in control of supply and demand. Not all doctors, not all consultants, but some key people who went off and set up their own private healthcare company. Uh, And when you're in control of supply and demand and you also have an NHS contract and you also have just set up your own company, there's mega bucks to be made. Now, I'm sorry, but I consider that of making any profit from the health care of the people is quite obscene next next element of privatization happened again by stealth. Um, we all know that the the, the demography is changing um, mostly by virtue of having a wonderful NHS for so long people are living longer uh, and therefore uh, health care and social care becomes even more important than it was in the past. Uh, that has been privatised. When I first came to work for the union, home helps in Northern Ireland were completely ununionized 30 years ago. Not only were they ununionized, they were badly exploited. Um, well, home care workers in Belfast earned more money than home care workers west of the ban. They didn't have entitlement to paid sick pay or paid holidays. They worked Christmas Day and every other statutory holiday for no additional payment. Um, They were very badly treated, but they also were incredibly uh, um, generous about going the extra mile for the clients they looked after. So a home help might be allocated to a client for, say, 30 minutes. But actually, along with her would be her husband. Would repaper the house. <laughs> She'd take home the laundry and do it. She'd provide additional food. All of those wonderful things happen without recognition or reward. When we started to unionize home helps, um, first of all, we got them the basic justice of paid holidays and annual uh, paid holidays and statutory sick day or statutory days and and sickness and things like that. But then we started to make the argument that these women, because they were all women, were being grossly undervalued in terms of the amount of pay, the level of pay, um, because it was just regarded as women's work. So it took us another few years to get that recognised, and um, Home Helps jumped up the pay scales and uh, became a decently paid, decent occupation um, We then started agitating for real training and for proper regulation. The response of the system to according rights to that large group of women at the time, there were about 10,000 of them, was by stealth to start putting the care services, the clients, into the private sector. And that's where we are today. And it has taken us a number of years to get to the bottom of that, to track through who was taking the decisions, what criteria those decisions were based on. And now there are about 20,000, still mainly women, in the private sector. And today, most of them earn on or below the minimum wage. They are on zero-hours contracts. They are exploited by many anti-trade union employers. Um, It is the rare home care provider who actually recognises the union and starts to do business with us. On the whole, we're having to make complaints about uh, both standards of care and standards of treatment of the workforce to the people who are actually paying for the service, the health system, and challenging them to do the right thing. We're also putting a great deal of effort and resource into unionising the people who work in the private home care sector. And there's great resistance to that because every time you secure rights and what looks like a victory, somebody in the system will find a way of circumventing that. Um, So there's another major part of privatisation. And then into the health service itself comes one of the most worrying developments. There's a lot of stress uh, there's a lot of frustration inside the system you can understand that uh, there's a great deal of understaffing understaffing at all levels but you see it probably most acutely um, you know in the ward you see it out in the community not enough nurses not enough district nurses um, you see it in the medical profession we haven't got x amount of this type of doctor or that type of doctor Um And people start to walk. Some people have walked away to other countries and they're a great loss to us. But some people have done um, a very different kind of exit. They've only partially left. They still work on NHS contracts, but they signed up with private agencies. The private agencies make multi-million pound profits out of the health service by selling back the services of the health service's own staff for a much greater um, hourly rate. So if I'm a nurse and I earn X amount per hour in the health service and I can triple or quadruple that by signing on to an agency and coming back into work, then that's the choice I'm taking. But that's the wrong choice because individuals don't have the right to privatise the health service themselves. We understand all of the frustrations and we think that everybody's been badly done by with a a pay cap that should never have happened. Um, That's what's undermined confidence of people coming to work in the health service. Um, It's what forces people to go to other places and other countries to get the jobs. Um, But also it has opened up this whole new world of bogus self-employment and as long as the health service is prepared to offer money um, that will give a locum doctor £1,000 an hour, then there will be people who will say, I want the £1,000 an hour, and I'll take that rather than work inside the system. There's the whole world of GPs. The, the world of GP practices is changing. When the health service was first created, we really survived... Uh, because the doctors came in from the Commonwealth countries, the doctors came from India and Pakistan, and they came from the Caribbean, and many of them went into GP practices, and it was wonderful because it meant that um, there was the uh, you know the the rolling out of this new start of universal health cover, um, but it was recognised about twenty odd years ago that the whole cohort were going to retire at the same time. And you had to encourage new doctors to come into the system, and the GP side of it, all of it is very intense and and very pressured. But I think the GP side of it particularly so, and many people see the, if you like the, um, the big monies to be made and becoming a specialist, becoming a consultant, becoming a surgeon or whatever. And, and, and the generalism and uh, almost the drudgery of being a GP is a whole a different story. Um, so it maybe was seen as the less desirable end of the medical profession. Um, but even that's changing because today we have um, many more young women coming in. To the system as as doctors and those young women um childbearing age they're going to have their families do they necessarily want to run a business it might be a much better proposition if they were directly employed by the health service who did all the, uh all that side of uh, of the business for them mm. um and we have been arguing that with the health system and successive ministers and um, ironically i think a wee bit of attention was being paid to that at the point at which our government recently collapsed but these are the kind of things that need looked at and then we're told that because of these um, different pressures they cannot get enough doctors that's why we have to close wards close hospitals shut the doors of any departments etc cetera, etc cetera. and we have said well you know if the health service was given such an extraordinary boost at its inception by doctors from other places, why don't we go looking for doctors in other places? And one of the places we've pointed to very seriously is Cuba, um, which has an extraordinary health service and a reputation for training doctors to send around the world. As the one place our health service has not yet looked, we're still pushing that one. Um, and then, and again, in the changing world we live in, Um, the union's been running English classes for migrant workers for quite a few years and in recent times we opened those classes to refugees and asylum seekers because there's very little else going for them and I have to tell you in the last couple of years we have had somewhere between 25 and 30 doctors on our general English courses and our specialist English courses and they're not allowed to work because they are asylum seekers. And if the health service was serious about dealing with the crisis that it faces, this is one way, they might just put some pressure on the UK government to start relaxing the rules. Um, And that's just the doctors who are coming through unison's doors in order to undertake the English classes, how many more are out there. So I don't believe it when I'm told there are not enough doctors to run the system. And I don't believe it when I'm told there is no alternative but to go to the private companies that have been set up by some doctors in order to deal with waiting times and waiting lists. And all of that, as you can see, is a progressive, a progressive uh, set of privatisation moves in terms of the health service. A health service that is still an excellent one, but is reeling with the underfunding, and the consistent tax on it.
0: Well you touched on quite a lot of things there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to to start by asking you whether, because obviously post-2010 when David Cameron um, and the Conservatives essentially got the keys, um, there's been a lot written and a lot talked about the sort of reorganisation they did alongside um, several management consultancy firms in order to restructure the nhs and essentially to a lot of people corporatize it and reorganize the management structure in a way that is very disconnected to the nurses and what's going on on the ground and in a way i feel that that has Frustrated, the people who have worked in the service for in the National Health Service for thirty or forty years, the the absolute veterans of it, who, having spoke to many of them, I know quite a lot of nurses because my mum's a nurse, and she just feels that it's just not the same as it it used to be. It's become a a tick box exercise, and and healthcare is no longer about the the people that they're meant to be looking after anymore. It's about fulfilling. You know, their targets hitting, making sure they have all their specific policies implemented. I heard a ridiculous one the other day about how, rather than go to the source of why nurses are stressed these days. Probably money, they're overworked, underpaid. And there aren't enough of them. And there aren't enough of them. And rather than addressing that, that particular um, issue and going, okay, why are the nurses stressed? They've inter- implemented a stress policy to try and identify when nurses are getting stressed. But uh, to me, that just seems baffling. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by a lot of what's going on. and It, it, it very much could be to, to your point about this march to privatisation that we have going on. Um, do you think post-2010 there's been an acceleration towards that sort of privatization that we're we're now towards where we've heard for the past almost decade that the nhs is in crisis it's underfunded Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. and eventually i think people are now becoming sick of hearing about it and do do you feel that that is is all very much to to a point where people just want to throw their hands up and and essentially go you know what just do what you want, just stop, just stop going on. Well, I
1: think that um, there's very clear evidence in Northern Ireland that that process has been accelerated since 2010. So um, for the past seven years, uh, the health service has become very opaque. Keep people in the dark, that's a deliberate strategy. Um, Not be held accountable because one part of the system will blame another part of the system. That's a deliberate strategy. Use language that nobody understands. That's a deliberate strategy. Mm. Um, all of that is about um, a decision somewhere that profit will be made from the delivery of healthcare in Northern Ireland, and we utterly reject that. There's very clear evidence across the entire healthcare system that, since almost you know the inception of the NHS. There have been attempts by the opponents of the NHS to get rid of it. I mean, you might you might look in horror at uh, the people who came out with the placards in the USA when the Affordable Health Care Act was making its way through um, the Congress over there, and there were people in their thousands standing outside with, you know, outrageous placards that were about letting poor people die and think God almighty, that would not happen in our society. But actually, since the inception of the NHS, there have been opponents of it. Um, Read Hansard. Read the Hansard uh, reports on the Northern Ireland government's response to the NHS, um, which was established a year later here, and see the opposition to this idea that you would create a decent society by treating your people decently and giving them the right... The absolutely fundamental human right to healthcare. Um, there are plenty of people, unfortunately, in positions of power who feel that way. There are plenty of people in positions of power who um, either make money from the delivery of private health and social care, or seek to make money from it. And there is a lack of transparency as to, you know, what vested interests are at play when decisions are taken. So one strategy is to keep the NHS in a constant state of review. And while it's in a constant state of review, you get a constant state of disorganisation. To continually reorganise it so that eventually people do not know where they fit into the system. And I think that's the... um, that's what I hear from the majority of our members at the minute. I do not know where I am in this system. I don't know who takes these decisions. I want somebody to listen to me. I have ideas about how we might do this better. I've spent 15 years developing partnerships inside the health service in Northern Ireland to demonstrate that when you do business together as the union, the workforce and the health employer, you can improve the delivery of health care. You can have much better health care and at the same time, you can improve the condition of the workers themselves who are delivering it. And we've got a mountain of evidence to prove that that's true. But we're trying to do that inside a system where we're also firefighting, trying to stop the worst excesses of the cuts, trying to protect our people, trying to protect the services themselves. Very, very difficult. It happens because there are political decisions taken behind the scenes very often in unaccountable settings, very often by people who are not themselves elected or held accountable and that's That's a real difficulty um, The system has got the wrong balance there are far too many people administering the system as opposed to directly delivering. And that's not to say that the administration of the system is not vital. It is. If I go to a hospital or go to see my GP, I like to think somebody will have my medical records and it will be the right name and the right person. All of that is really, really important stuff. But it's been deliberately constructed in recent years to make it as unworkable as possible. I mean, you, you would actually need to do courses in how to construct some of the decision-making structures we have and how to make them as frustrating as possible instead of streamlining them and putting those resources and those people and those jobs much more directly into the delivery of frontline care all of which um, should be seen as part of the delivery. A hospital cleaner is a vital element in hygiene which is one of the biggest advances of medicine for a 100 years. Um, the people who cook with food are part of a system of healing because most people who present at hospital are malnourished in some sort of a way and therefore they need good nutritional um, proper food in order to recover and get well and these people are dismissed as um unnecessary and we can cut here and we can cut there and again same thing with many of the people on the frontline reception or the medical records people or um the the medical secretaries are gonna be the people who are making sure you move through the system as smoothly as you can. Um all of that's part of the healthcare team and it's really, really important part of the healthcare team. But you do not need three very senior managers all responsible for um let's say procurement. Uh three with exactly the same job. Um what you need is smart ways of thinking about how a system which spends billions on procurement does it a smart way, does it a proper way and a decent way. Not bargain basement, lowest tender, privatise whatever you can, make uh, you know, make your cuts while the other side's making the profit. Um, all of those things need attention paid. It is much worse today than it was 20 years ago. And I, there were many, many flaws in the system 20 years ago. There were many flaws 30 years ago. But instead of each review being review to make it better, the reviews have either made it worse or where they could have made it better have been put in a drawer and not implemented. So, you know, um, this is not an impossible task. This is a task that with political will can be sorted out to the benefit of all. So all that horrible stuff we saw in the USA, which was about let those people die, there are no consequence, could very easily manifest itself very visibly here, except that, thank God, there is, you know, the NHS is very much part of our psyche. Protecting it is what's important. But you tell me who's actually taken the loans out to be able to get the treatment they need in order to protect their health. A lot of poor people, a lot of working class people who can ill afford alternatives are now doing that and the evidence is growing that that group of people is doing this more and more. That's not acceptable. I've Far as I'm concerned, it's a breach of their fundamental human rights and it is a blight on our society.
0: I couldn't agree more. We had actually on uh, the last episode of the podcast, uh, Harry Phone who's from the UK Libertarian Party, and he was arguing with me about the merits of using the free market to improve healthcare. And I very much made the point to him that I don't want to be wheeled into a&E while people search for insurance documents in my pocket, while they're attempting to, you know, keep me alive. <laughs> Essentially, I feel like it's a, There are issues that we can there are markets that you can privatise, and you know there are ways to improve services. But to me, health is sacred, and as you said, it's a fundamental right of everyone.
1: It's a fundamental human right, and it is obscene to countenance making a profit out of the delivery of health care to the people. I mean, I, ha- I have worked all my life and I pay my taxes and I'm one of many millions and millions of people who do so. And I'm very proud of the fact that a portion of that tax goes to delivering a national health service which should be and remain free at the point of need. And to me, that is a mark of a civilized society, a society where we care about each other. That is not a debate for profit, and it's not for the free market. And the people who think that way really do frighten me because that is not much different, in my view, Uh, from deciding that money can be made from enslaving human beings money can be made from exploiting human beings now let's make money from treating human beings who need to be made well or caring for human beings who are vulnerable and have served their time in our society and need a bit of care and attention to me, that's all obscene. It's all part of the same thing.
0: I, I I couldn't agree more. um Their argument for sort of to note is that, well, not their argument, but Rand Paul. He's a he's a pretty extreme libertarian in America. You may be familiar with him, but he, his argument is that by saying healthcare is a right, you are enslaving a doctor to be treating people. Now, I, I, I personally think that's. A ridiculous statement but anyway uh you you kind of talked there about the constant state of review that the nhs is in and that the department of health is in in northern ireland so we've had uh, we've had the in northern ireland the maurice hayes report the compton report the donaldson review and now um the ben goa report that have all come out in the past since 2000 and to me they're all saying the same thing fundamentally. They're all saying, okay, we need to have the removal of some acute hospital services and we need to pump money into community care services to take the pressure off of A&Es and off of hospital beds to you know, try and keep people in their homes, which is, I think, a very noble cause. But to me, there seems to be a serious disconnect between what they're saying in, in these reports and what they're proposing gets implemented and the, and the amount of care that needs to be done in the community compared to what's actually going on. Like they want to, they've talked about more nurse practitioners, they want to have more GP training positions, they want to have, I think by spring of next year, they wanted to have a named district nurse um, and a in every single GP's clinic. Um, but then at the same time, we're looking at, in Fermanagh for example, That we're looking at 30% of GPs are set to retire in the next two years. Dr. Tom Black and the LMC are, have handed in around 60% of practices in Northern Ireland have said they have undated ready, resignations that they're ready to hand in if they're not listened to. Like, Why do you think there's such a huge gaping chasm between what they're proposing and what's actually going on
1: a whole lot of reasons for that um back in 1986 we were involved in what at the time became the longest strike in the health service happened in the royal victoria hospital and it was about the imposition of a set of cuts that fell on the shoulders of the support workers it was unjust and there was no consultation and we weren't listened to and this strike ensued there was a peace deal involved at the end of it um, but it also led to an inquiry and we insisted that the people who conducted the inquiry would have to come from outside these shores because one of the problems with our healthcare system is the too much vested interest, and there are far too many people with conflicts of interest that never surface. So we got that. Sir John Wood, who was the person who created the whole Whitney negotiating system and was the chair of ACAS, he chaired it, and we had an employer from the health system in England, and we had a leading trade unionist from the TUC. Um, and essentially that inquiry found that we were justified because as a public service union we had a duty to speak out on behalf of our members and protect them but we also had a duty to speak out on behalf of the public we served and we were doing both. It also found that we had the right to be consulted and influence decisions before they were taken, not be told about it after the event and that became um, very much a mantra by which we lived you know we've got an important role in this listen to what we have to say interestingly the one group of people who gave evidence against us having those rights aside from the uh, health system itself was the bma who argued that outside of doctors the rest of us didn't have the right to be consulted and that was very disappointing back then that they should take that view but the review itself found that they had um, already got a privileged position they were inside the room whereas the rest of the workers in the unions were trying to get inside the room to have sensible conversations about how these things should be handled so to a very large extent that privileged position of being inside the room still applies to doctors Um, I have been willing to work with the BMA over the years and I'd like to see more of that happening. I would like to see far more of their own people speak up and to speak up not just about themselves but about the rest of the system and what's happening to the patients and the clients and the rest of the healthcare team, the rest of the workforce. I'd like to see much more of that because these are very powerful and influential people But I'd also like to see them speak up about those in their own ranks who are controlling that supply and demand and moving into the delivery of private sector medicine. Now, there are an awful lot of decent clinicians in Northern Ireland who object to the way in which this is evolving. But I need people to raise their heads above the parapets Why do the cleaners have to do it? Why do the nurses have to do it? Is it not time that people in more privileged positions did it? And will they do it collectively? And then we'd start to see a bit more justice. And we'd start to see a system which is quite contemptuous. Um, Maybe start to pay attention. Maybe be held accountable. The people themselves, I'm sure, would all like to hold the health service accountable but when something's been uh, constructed that is so complicated has been made so complicated um and is so deeply frustrating because it keeps passing the parcel about whose decisions we're dealing with um people start to get very upset and they start to walk away if they can't get to the decision maker so getting to the decision maker is really important um There are health workers right across the system who have listened to would find much better ways of delivering more with the resources that are there at the minute. We have proven that time and again. Um, If they would do it collaboratively across all of the groups, not just leave it to the support workers or leave it to the nurses, uh, let's include the doctors in this too, let's do it collectively, there would be a different response. And as we have said recently to the Trusts, if they would do it with us, if the actual decision makers at that level would stand together with the workforce and with the unions and say to governments, this won't do, then we would get a better response. We might get the resources we need and we might get smarter reviews. Not all the reviews were about the same thing over the last 18 years. Mm. Um, many of those reviews very deliberately did not look at the governance of the system and did not look at the decision-making processes. Oh, certainly they looked at the number of hospitals. Um, They looked at what services were being delivered on the ground and whether those could be done in a different way. They looked at whether we should shift from acute to community, all of those things. But most of those reviews did not look at the system of governance at all, in which case, if they had li- looked at it, they would have found out that some people have been doing very nicely their entire lives out of messing around with the health service, and they've been paid very well in order to do that. And they are obstacles. They are obstructionist, and they have some very contemptuous ideas about whole tracts of the people who work inside the system. And those people I will spend the rest of my life challenging.
0: Yeah, the, the, the amount that... The amount of management that is now in the NHS is something that I've been listening to nurses talk about for the past sort of five years. And they're utterly, they, the, the most common theme that I hear is that they don't understand what these people do all day. And from their point of view, from the nurse's point of view, they're, they're doing things that, that nurses and matrons used to do themselves. They used to organise on a more, maybe even ward by ward basis and and figure out how care was going to be delivered in in that respect. And I think that's a a serious issue in looking to... um,
1: One of the things we did a long time ago as a union, a little experiment that worked very well for a period of time, was we convinced um, one of the hospitals to start running sessions, like lunchtime sessions, and have different parts of the healthcare care team come along and talk to everybody else about what it is they did for a living. Mm. So we had the consultants doing it, we had the junior doctors doing it, we had managers doing it, we had nurses doing it, we had support workers doing it and that was a great illumination because that was about communication and starting to understand where people fitted in in the system. Today, that would be a very difficult task because of the level of reorganisation that's gone on, particularly over the last um, 15 years, many people inside the system cannot themselves explain where they are in it and why they are in it. And again, that has been deliberate. So it might look as though you've got whole tracks of people who don't do anything for a living. That is not true. But you have many, many people who do not understand where they fit into the system and whether or not they have any real power or decision-making ability. And that's where all the frustrations break up. Um, A system as big as the NHS has to have superb communication mechanisms and ours doesn't have, and it could have. And mostly it's about people talking to each other. It's about not working on a ward for 20 years Uh, say you're the porter attached to that ward and nobody knows your name not acceptable it's about the doctors who come in and out every day and they don't notice that somebody's cleaning the ward and they don't know that person's name all of these things decent human common courtesies treating people with respect all of that would make a difference But most importantly, understanding what role people have to play in the system. And when you start to understand what role people have to play in the system, then you can start taking smart decisions about whether that role should be changed or something better should be introduced that would make the system work better. None of the reviews have been about that. So there's a great deal of protectionism exercised by the very people who are themselves in control of the reviews?
0: Yeah, it's it's a difficult system to change. There's there's two questions I want to ask you, sort of, as as we get towards the end of our uh, our time. Uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you to what extent you felt that the exacerbation of waiting lists, the recruitment shortages, the pay caps, the Absolutely abhorrent treatment of junior doctors um, by the, the both the BMA and the and the government themselves, especially when they went on strike and the sort of not reluctance but the commitment that a lot of workers in the NHS have to their patients that they don't want to strike. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think all that plays into this idea of stretching the service until breaking point? Do, do you think it's do you think it's all being made as a conscious decision, or do you think some of it is as a result of circumstance and, and just
1: some is conscious decision? I I am absolutely sure that behind the scenes, and I keep saying behind the scenes because some faceless, um, unaccountable people take big decisions. That behind the scenes, the drive towards private medicine and privatisation of the service is real, mm. and is rooted in some arcane decision making process that one day we may find out about um much of the rest of it i think is um the cumulative of the cumulative effect of literally years of reorganization some of it completely senseless why do we need health trusts um completely um undermining people's confidence and just getting on with the job Um, distorting the ability to communicate with each other and understand what's going on and where they fit in the system Um, being frustrated by um, being undervalued thinking that um, we had several years ago created a great new um, pay system in the health service for the vast majority of people it didn't impact on the clinical side but Vast majority of people inside this big agenda for change job evaluation scheme and thinking that we were getting somewhere near equal pay and better pay and then being hit with a pay cap. Uh, and therefore the majority of people working in the health service and in other parts of society worse off than they were 10 years ago. Um, having to do more with less income and taking off a lot more pressure breaking point for a lot of people I have seen very good people at all levels leave the system I've seen people break down inside the system nobody should go to work to cry nobody should go to work to feel uh, that they have failed to deliver to a patient or a client that that should not happen but it's happening now on a regular basis so I think you've got some conscious behind the scenes decisions that are taking us down a very bad road and you've got the cumulative effect of so many reorganizations, reorganizations, reviews, reviews and no real evidence that somebody is taking a clear decision to say, well, OK, we're going to put the money in and we're going to make that review A reality we're going to make this thing actually happen and in order to do that we are the whole society is going to have to understand that if you want to shift care out of the hospitals and into the community as a whole then you're going to have to put more money into the community while at the same time not killing the people who are in the hospitals and not making the waiting lists even longer most recently there's an outrageous thing going on 70 million pounds worth of cuts sounds very small in the scheme of the big health budget but it is unnecessary. It is cynical. It is political manipulation. And it is unacceptable that it should frighten older, vulnerable people who need home care and patients who are already too long on the waiting list, the waiting times are too long, or who may not get onto the waiting lists. And that doesn't need to happen because. There are one or two things going on here. Either the health service, because we don't have a government at the minute, is allowing itself to be used as a political pawn to put pressure on our political parties to get back into devolved government, and that's utterly unacceptable. You don't use the health service that way. Or the people who are currently running the health service, particularly at the highest level of the Department of Health, are not very good negotiators and didn't get sufficient money out of the bidding session for the health budget. Mm. Um, My understanding is they're 80-odd million short on what they need to just stay steady state for the coming year, and they've sent 70 million of that to the six, well, five of the six trusts to produce as cuts. They call them savings, we call them cuts. Um, None of that needs to happen because that £70 million is out there, could be found very easily. There's lots of underspending going on in other government departments. There's going to be a reallocation of money. There is, that happens twice a year. Um, So people don't need to be put through this pain. So why are we being put through this pain as the health service workforce, as the patients and clients, as the unions? For reasons other than the delivery of healthcare, And I have a real problem with anybody sitting on a health trust board, a regional health care board, uh, a public health agency board, or any other board taking those decisions instead of saying to the system, no, that's not what we're here for. We're here to be the guardians of health care. We're not going to make these cuts because we don't have to make these cuts. You're forcing us to do this. You're threatening us. And you don't need to do that. And let's get to the actual person who's saying this. Is it the Secretary of State? Is it the Permanent Secretary in the Department of Health? Is it the Permanent Secretary in the Department of Finance? Is it the person who chairs this board, that board or the other board? Who is it? Because it's somebody, it can't be nobody. So, somebody's doing it and they don't need to do it. And that's about using healthcare as a political football. We hear that cliche all the time. But healthcare should be, because it's a fundamental human right, governed inside a human rights framework and an equality framework. And the decisions that are taken should be done on that basis. And if it was done on that basis, nobody would dare suggest that an older person. Who currently needs a home care worker will not get one or that a patient who is in distress and on the waiting list will now just have to wait longer.
0: Yeah, that's that's never an acceptable outcome in, in my mind and, and in the minds of a lot of other people as well actually. Something that did give me some hope for the future of the NHS was that at the, the most recent election there in, in Britain that the NHS consistently polled as the most important thing to people. Above Brexit, above the economy, above everything. So that that gave me some hope that we, you know, we're not fighting a losing battle and trying to keep it together. But just to, to wrap up, I wanted to ask you two questions. First is it is easy. It's what do you think of Jeremy Hunt? <laughs> and the second one is if you were given Free reign, essentially, to maybe implement like a three-point or a five-point plan just to say, like, what would you address first in trying to bring the NHS back to where it should be?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think of Jeremy Hunt at all because he is the English Health Secretary. It's nothing to do with us.
0: Well, but he has a lot of influence in the way that the NHS is.
1: Uh, with well, us, the NHS yeah. in England. I'm telling you, this is what has happened to the NHS over that's... time, right? So I don't think of him at all. I know what he has done inside. the. He and his predecessors have done inside the English health system, um, which has brought it to an extraordinary place. I mean, you're just talking about billions and billions of pounds worth of cuts inside that health system. Um, There's a different... Uh, health secretary in Scotland there's a different one in Wales well, we and we haven't know. got one yeah. at <laughs> all right so I really don't he does not other than as collectively unison is the largest public sector union in the UK mm-hmm. and we know who these ministers are it's not somebody we would do di- bi- business with okay. nor do we want to do business with Director. you yeah, we want our we want our own government back again um, just looked as though we were about to get somewhere ironically it was, um, like was it, it was looking as though we were going to get some smart collective decision making from the outgoing executive there was a um, fresh approach from the new minister um, and as you know as the fates would have it just as though it looked as though it was going to move somewhere the whole thing collapsed there's anything, uh, but there's strange. a reason the whole thing collapsed that um, we have been talking about for 10 years now Um you simply cannot go through, particularly since 2010, you cannot go through pretending that all is well and that we have a functioning government. If the gap between rich and poor in Northern Ireland is getting wider, um, if child poverty is growing, if health inequalities are growing, and if the people who need support most are dying prematurely and their life expectancy has been limited instead of all of the things that were promised in the peace agreement, which was that would all get better. So you can't go through pretending that's not happening. So, you know, I live without a government for as long as it takes for our politicians to get their heads around what is really required of them, which is to get together and deliver on the uh, 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 the best for all of the people, and they would need to be doing that by subscribing to genuine equality and human rights frameworks. And the fact that that hasn't happened um, effectively since the Good Friday Agreement, but real regression has taken place over the last 10 years, that should disturb us all, because it it is mostly um, the poorest and the working-class people in this society are feeling the brunt of it. And that's that's not the deal.
0: We have the most millionaires, I think, per person, in any area of the UK, and yet we're still one of the poorest.
1: Yeah, and the gap is absolutely enormous. So you know that that needs to happen. Um, what will we do? What are the three things? Um, I've just described the first one: uh, a genuine signing up to healthcare delivery through an equality and human rights framework, um, and that means that um, you've got to uh, always decisions about who gets what will have to be made. But that that like But you really do need to start by applying the principle of objective need and saying that the people who need it most need to get it first. Um, Health is something in terms of fundamental human right that requires you to deliver absolute rights. I don't want to die. I need an emergency system. Progressive rights. We'd like to develop and expand the healthcare system and it'll take place over time and that will improve people's health outcomes and they will have better you know, life expectancy, etc. So, yeah, it, it's about the quality and it's about saying that there's some things that are absolute and there's some things that we will all work together in society to get to. Um, in order to work together, we've got to resource it. So, resourcing it, It might be the biggest part of the Northern Ireland budget, but that's what it should be. What is wrong with that? And also, it might be the biggest part, but the spending isn't sufficient on international standards. And it isn't always about give me more. Uh, Genuinely treating the workforce with respect, all sections of the workforce, and understanding that if you listen, to many of the ideas coming from the workforce, you will deliver a much more effective and efficient healthcare system. In order to do that, you do not have to increase the bureaucracy of the system to set up 10 new listening mechanisms. You look at the resources you've got and you work out what's the best way of doing this. Um, these, are, these are essentials. Essentials. The different parts of the system also need to talk to each other. So Why are there um, queues and people on trolleys and all of that? There are different reasons for it. But some of the reasons could be eliminated tomorrow morning. Do we have a proper system for discharging people? if a doctor tells you at 10 o'clock in the morning that you can go home but you need to have your medication can you get your medication within 10 minutes instead of using that bed up until 5 o'clock in the afternoon because somebody else is on a trolley downstairs ordinary things like that that the people who work in the health service are really smart about they see it every day and their frustration is who do I need to talk to to get this put right so those are things that need to be sorted out Um, do we need to cause constant hysteria in local communities by putting the cuts and closure proposals in front of the proposals to redesign and develop something new, no we don't so if a decision to change the way in which we deliver healthcare means that we won't be doing it in that place over there anymore we'll be doing it in this way and here's what's going to happen We're going to run the two things side by side and you're going to be able to test whether what we're going to introduce is better than what we're going to close. That's not the way we do things. Here's how we do the health service. We're closing that. Oh, look, you're all out in the street. You're unreasonable, people. That's constantly been the approach. Get people out onto the streets. Make them mad. Make them angry. Instead of saying... There are new ways of doing things. We are listening to what you have to say. And we're going to show you. We're going to demonstrate this by doing some joint running. And then you'll see which is the better. The thing we loved about the Cuban health system, which is why we convinced the person who later became the health minister, um, Jim Wells, to go to Cuba alongside um, Sue Ramsey, who at the time was the chair of the Assembly Health Committee, time we convinced them to go big international health conference in cuba we wanted them to see the system and we talked to the cubans about making special access for our two politicians and they got that access and what they saw was a system that has um major gp coverage across a population of over 12 million people um the gps are specialists so they're constantly training and retraining in the specialism of being a general practitioner you only go to hospital if you absolutely need to go to hospital. And there's two tiers of those. Um, one tier we might call the general hospital tier, and you need some kind of procedure it's gonna happen there. And the other tier is about the diseases that they haven't been able to eradicate. They've done really good things in healthcare it's the things that we all die of the cubans describe it as the rich diseases coronary <laughs> coronaries cancer you know the, the the things that they they're grappling with but you only go um, and yeah, the brain surgery and what have you you go to the specialist level and that system works now i'm not saying that's completely transferable into the nhs but i am saying that when people like professor pietroni who is um, an icon in NHS training of doctors over the decades, have insisted over those decades that um, medical students from the NHS in England go on like a tour of duty in the Cuban Health Service so they can see how it works. He's doing that for a reason. Because what will the Cubans say? They will tell you that they use the NHS as their model. And what they've done with that model is a place without resources has worked out how we might do this well. And there's a lot to be learned.
0: Well, that's a, a, a quite a nice note to end on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the original NHS, I just want to clarify there, not, not the bastardised version we have now. But
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I would still say that it's the best system in the world. Oh, I agree. But yeah. Uh, just constantly under attack and doesn't need to be.
0: Well, thanks very much for for coming on. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Thanks very much for listening. Later in the week, we've got interviews with Harry Fone from the UK Libertarian Party and Matt and Scott from Progressive Politics Northern Ireland. So if you want to make sure to catch them, subscribe to us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, thanks.